How are you all doing today? Good? Good. My name is Timon Benson. I'm the lead and teaching pastor here, and this is your first Sunday with us. Welcome. If you've got a Bible, open it up to uh, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. That's right. We're coming into the very last chapter in the book of Romans. We're almost through our study of the book of Romans. What I do to prepare sermons is I, 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 I study the text myself and I also have a number of different commentaries that I use in order to, to, to delve into the text and mine the text and study the text for God's truth. Uh, I use a commentary by Doug Moo, which is more of an exegetical commentary, a commentary by Cranfield, which is many years old now, but it's a good commentary as well. And then I use uh, one by John MacArthur and then I also use one by Chuck Swindoll, because Chuck is a preacher and he has a lot of good illustrations and various sorts of insights into the text that you can use. Anyway, I was studying this passage, Romans 16, and Chuck starts out the chapter on Romans 16 with this illustration. And as I read the illustration, I thought, I was there. I remember that. Uh, he talks about how, you see, I, uh, was, uh, I did my seminary over at Dallas Theological Seminary and uh, I did my internship at Stonebriar Community Church, which is the church that Chuck Swindoll is the pastor. Now, I didn't really know Chuck and he didn't really know me, so if you ever see him and you say, do you know Timon Benson, he won't have a clue who I am. I did take a photo, however, one day with his arm around me so that I could sort of say that I sort of knew him, but uh, he doesn't really know me. But one of the things that he used to do is that every year we would go as a group of uh, interns as a group of students and we go on this bus trip he called it the thousand mile conversation us like 16 of us and Chuck Swindoll going all around Texas talking to different church pastors about ministry and about what ministry's like and he, it was just it was a fantastic time just picking Chuck Swindoll's brain over ministry and all that sort of stuff anyway we came to this particular church where we were going to interview the pastor and we walked into the foyer and the pastor hadn't arrived, but the janitor was there, the custodian, you know, the person who cleans up the mess. And, um, and Chuck said, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. Let me just talk to him. And so Chuck said, he said to the janitor, he said, uh, so how many people come to your church on Sunday? And the janitor said, well, we process 2,500 people every weekend. I thought about that. And Chuck wrote in his commentary, he said, you know, meat processing plant, that processes meat, but churches should really not process people, you know. And, um, and uh, you know, then we talked to the staff and talked to the church leaders and it was obvious that where this janitor had picked up that phrase from was actually from the pastors. That the way they operated the church was sort of like a meat factory where we process things, we process people. Have you ever been in a church like that? where you felt like it was just a big mechanism, like you felt like you were just a number, all in all, we're just another brick in the wall. You just felt like you were just part of this big process that was all happening. Well, we come to the 16th chapter of Romans and we are now in verses 1 to 16 and this is a very personal section of the letter. And I'm really sad that we've come to the end of Romans, you know, I've really enjoyed preaching through it all year long and I hope you know that I intend on being here for the next 20 to 30 years 
And so probably I'm not going to get an opportunity to preach from Romans again for a good like 15 years until most of you have died off, you know. So, um, and most of you can't remember. I need just, I need just kidding. And so, um, and so I'm sort of sad to come to the end of our, our time in Romans. But it has been a great time, hasn't it? We've learnt a lot. We've learnt a lot about the doctrine of salvation. The first five chapters were about, you know, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, all these Asian words that are really meaningful and speak about the redemptive act that we've experienced in Christ. Then we came into Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8. And remember this phrase, you can change because God has changed you. That's right. We talked about the doctrine of sanctification, how we're in Christ, we're in union with Christ and how that's made a massive difference in our lives and now the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us and the indwelling presence of the Spirit frees us from the remnants of our flesh. And that is really a really key chapter. Romans 8 is a key chapter for every Christian to understand and appropriate because of that reason. Then we looked at Romans 9, 10 and 11 and we looked at the fact that God is sovereign in human history and God is orchestrating human history. He's, he's that big a God and we, we stood in awe. Do you remember the end of Romans 11? The end of our worship service where we said, who wins? God wins. Let's try that again. Who wins? God wins. That's the whole big ending of Romans 11 is that the God that we serve isn't some finite small being. He is a God who is above us, who's beyond our thoughts, whose paths are beyond tracing out. He is one to be feared, one to be worshipped, one to stand in awe of. We came into Romans 12 and we said, this God who is just standing over human history, he deserves our complete devotion and surrender. That was the message of Romans 12. And then in the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Christian conscience at Romans 13 and 14 and how to handle disputable issues and I bet you last Sunday there was a lot of good conversation after lunch after church was there am I correct yes I think there probably was anyway now we come into Romans 16 and in this very personal section of the letter I want to give you just really simply three simple lessons for ministry just three really simple lessons about ministry. Here's the first one I want to give you. Really, a really simple lesson. Ministry is about availability. Like, we often make ministry really complicated. We make the church really complicated. I want to give you really very simple things this morning. Oftentimes, my, my preaching can be, I know, very top shelf, or I like to think of it as top shelf, but this morning, I'm taking it off the shelf and giving it to you so that you can apply it. Here's the first lesson. Ministry is about availability. Now look down in verse 1 of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. The name Phoebe means bright and shining one. Have you ever met a Phoebe like that? Bright and shining. Bright and shining one. Paul goes on to say, a servant of the church at Centria. Now Centria was the port city of Corinth. It was about eight miles away from Corinth. And the word servant there is the Greek word diakonos. We get the word deacon from that. And so there's much discussion in the commentaries as to whether 
Phoebe was an actual deaconess, which is quite possible. According to 1 Timothy 3, we can have deaconesses in the church. Or she was just a really good servant of the church. She served people in the church. It doesn't really matter. What is really saying is, Paul is really saying that this, this bright, shining lady had a servant heart for people. Now, in verse 2, he goes on to say, I commend to you our sister Phoebe that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. Now, the reason he's writing this letter of commendation is that in the first century, there were no hotels, there weren't any motels. Uh, Most of the inns in the first century were actually brothels. And so when you were traveling, you would most often stay with family or friends Or in the case of Christians, Christians would write letters of commendation to other Christians commending these people so that they would take them in and look after them. And that's what Paul is saying. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, look after her, take her in, look after her. Now there's one further detail we learn about Phoebe in verse 2. Look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the word patron there suggests that Phoebe was a person of means. Maybe she was a merchant, maybe she'd been independently wealthy, her family was wealthy, but she was a person of means and she used her means for the extension of the gospel. So we're getting this picture of Phoebe. She's a single woman, she may be a trader, in, in, trader or merchant in, in, in that way. She's uh, a servant in the church And uh, she uses her her wealth for the extension of of the Lord's work. Now, why is Paul actually commending Phoebe to the Romans? Why is he doing that? Well, there's a really simple reason. Phoebe was the one who carried the letter to the Romans. She is the one who has actually physically given this letter to the Romans. You see... Paul's in Corinth and he's writing this letter from Corinth and he says, I need someone to take the letter. And Phoebe puts up a hand and says, I'll do it. I'll take the letter. Now, it's just such a simple thing. But here's the thing I've found about ministry. The smallest things done for the Lord can make big impact, can make a massive impact. Here's just a small thing. Dropping a letter in from Corinth, taking it from Corinth to Rome. But what a letter did she take? The letter of the Romans. A letter that has transformed history. A letter that was read by Martin Luther and the Reformation started. A letter that has transformed all of our lives. You see, she just did such a simple thing. Just a simple thing. She took this letter from Corinth to Rome, but it had a massive impact. Here's the thing. Often I get asked by people, what can I do? I don't have much. And all I want to say is, just be available. Just do simple things. Because the smallest thing can have the hugest impact. You know, I think of Susanna Wesley, who all she did was she raised her two boys Charles and John to fear the Lord, but they ended up being revivalists who transformed the culture of their times. And here's the thing, if there might be many people here today and you're thinking, what can I do to serve the Lord? And all I would say to you 
is just make yourself available. Just say, Lord, here I am. Use me. I hand you my life as a blank check. You spend it however you want. And the Lord will take that and he will use you and you have no idea about how you'll be used for his honour and his glory. You know, it might be such a simple thing. You might just be a Sunday school teacher. But how many times have you heard of pastors and missionaries stand up and say, it was because of my Sunday school teacher who introduced me to Christ that I'm here today. Think of Graham, my pastor Graham's grandfather. He and a whole group of men would just do a simple thing. They would gather together in a barn in North Carolina praying and asking God to raise up a revivalist, a preacher. And little did they know that there was this little boy who would, over, who would often scoff them and overhear their prayers in the loft. And do you know who that little boy was? Billy Graham. Such a simple thing can have a big impact. Just taking a letter. Taking a letter, but what a letter. What a letter. So ministry is about being available. Being available. Second point is leaders need ministry. Now after Paul finishes his commendation of Phoebe in verses 1 and 2, he says in verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now that word Prisca is the shortened version of Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. Now if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Priscilla and Aquila were introduced to them in Acts chapter 18. They were expelled from Rome and they went to live over in Ephesus because the Emperor Claudius had kicked out all of the Jews out of Rome. And so they went to live in Ephesus and they were working as tent makers. And they, they met up with Paul and Paul obviously introduced them to Christ. He led them to Christ. And then they became, as it says in the text there, it says, Paul says about them that they are his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Whenever you see that phrase in the New Testament, it's always about uh, people, Paul's referring to his ministry team, to those people who are in ministry with him. It's sort of be like my ministry team as Pastor Paul and Pastor Brian, Pastor Andrew and Pastor James and Pastor Jeremy. We're, we're fellow workers in the ministry and that is what Priscilla and Aquila were like, this godly couple that they worked alongside of, of Paul and, they, um, and, and, and they, they travelled with Paul and when Apollos came and he needed instruction, it was Priscilla and Aquila who gave it. But then in verse 4, Paul says this. He says <clears throat> that they risked their necks for my life. Now when did that happen? When did that happen that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for Paul? Well, actually, we read about this over in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, just turn it over to Acts 19 and verse 23. You see, what's happening in Ephesus is there is just such a massive revival in Ephesus. People are turning to God. People are turning away from idols you see in verse 19 it says, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of sil silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
So see, what's happening in Ephesus is there is this revival of the gospel that's taking place. It's just massive. But we see down in verse 23, look down in verse 23 of Acts 19, about that time, (coughs) there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That actually means that there was a large disturbance concerning Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, bought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be counted as nothing, and she may even be disposed from her magnificence, whom she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, what had happened was the gospel was taking such a root in the culture that it was affecting the trade. It was affecting the trade of the city. This silversmith who had created these idols of silver was finding that his trade was being affected because so many people were turning from idolatry. It was affecting the city. Wouldn't you love it if we had such an impact in Adelaide that the very systems of our society were being affected, that the people were standing up and taking notice? They were saying, that sex industry is not like what it used to be because people are turning away from that idol. You see, this is what it's like. Is the revival has happened. Ephesus is turning to Christ. It's affecting things. And when the gospel starts to take a root like that in a culture, you will see opposition. And that's what's happening. Demetrius, he doesn't really care about the idols. I, I, you know, maybe he did a bit, but I think more he cared about the fact that he, he was going out of business. This Paul who's teaching people to turn from idols. People are actually turning from idols. It's having an effect. And so you'll read on in verse 28 and following that it caused a great sort of ruckus in the city, a great disturbance, a riot. They dragged some of the brothers out into the riot. Paul wanted to go into the midst of the riot, but the brothers said, no, Paul, you shouldn't go. And so it was a great opposition to the work of the gospel in Ephesus. Now, we're not really told that much detail about it, but there are these other glimpses into what happened in the letters of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about being in Asia and he talks about despairing even life itself. So this opposition must have really been a great burden for Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he actually fought wild beasts in Ephesus. We don't really know. Maybe he was captured and he was put into the arena. And right here... In Romans 16, he says that Priscilla and Aquila, they risked their necks for him. They put their life on the line for him. See, what I want to tell you now is that leaders are people who need ministry as well. Leaders need ministry. Leaders need Priscilla's and Aquila's. Godly couples who will get around them and minister to them. Because in ministry, you face opposition. In ministry, 
You face stuff. You face struggles. You face demonic oppression. You face all this sort of stuff in ministry. And you need people who will get around you and who will minister to you. Back in my church in Helensvale, there was this couple called Graham and Elsa Denner. And they were just a beautiful couple. They, whoever, whenever the pastor, whoever the pastor was at Helensvale Baptist Church, they would embrace that pastor. They would get around them. They would open their, their hearts and their, and their house to them. They would pray for them. They would support them. Graham and Elsa had a huge impact on Tegan and I. They welcomed us into their house. They loved us. They supported us. When we were away in Dallas Theological Seminary, they supported us financially. He was a doctor, she was a teacher. And when I came and was inducted as the senior pastor here, Graham and Elsa were here to support us. Maybe you need to lend some support in that way. You know, maybe you need to get around Brian and Lois and support them. Maybe you need to get around Andrew and Michelle and support them. Maybe you need to get around... Jeremy and Claire and have them over for dinner and support them. Maybe you need to, to minister to Pastor Paul and, and Ruth. You know, often we, we think these people are just so untouchable that they need no ministry. But you will never know how lonely it can be in ministry. How lonely it can be. As you have these burdens for the church and you have secrets that people tell you and you can tell no one. And so there is a ministry of Priscilla's and Aquila's, godly couples who will embrace leaders and love them and risk their neck for them at times. I just want to show you another, like, you might say, well, I'm just a single person. I can't be involved in this ministry. Look in verse 13. Paul says, Greek Rufus. I love that name, Rufus. We had a dog called Rufus. <laughs> if I ever had a son, Andrew, that was what I was going to call him. Rufus. Come here, Ruf. Um, getting on from that. Um, says Rufus chosen in the Lord. This Rufus here is probably a reference to the Rufus who we find over in Mark 15 who was actually his, he was a brother of Alexander and his father was Simon, the one who carried the cross for Jesus. Remember that guy? It was chosen Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross. It actually says in Mark 15 that he was the father of Rufus and Simon and and if you know anything about Mark's gospel, it was written to Christians in Rome and so probably... This is the same Rufus. But look at what it says about Rufus. It goes, Paul goes on to say, Greet Rufus and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Been a mother to me. You could embrace someone. You could love them and be a mother to them. You know, not all of the ministry of our Give Service ministry is all about just organised formal ministry. A lot of the ministry can just be natural, loving and caring for other people. And I'm just saying, I'm just pleading with you that let's not just see that as going one way from the shepherds in our church to the people in our church 
But we all are needy. Our shepherds in our church are brothers and sisters in Christ too. We're all needy. We're, there's, there's an equal platform before, before the ground of, of the Lord and we all are in need of grace and we're all in need of care. We're all in need of loving. That's what I'm saying. Do you get what I'm saying? Some of you, I just do believe that you might be called to that ministry, the Priscilla and Aquila ministry. All right. So ministry is about availability. Leaders need ministry. And my final and simple point is ministry is about people. Paul mentions 27 people by name in this list. And I want to go through the list and just make some comments on the various people in the list, okay? Just to, just to unpack it for you. Look in verse 5. It says about Priscilla and Aquila. Paul says, greet also the church in their house. Now, I didn't give these comments in the um, 9 o'clock service, but I want to give these comments in this service because uh, this is a very significant verse uh, in terms of our understanding of the church. You see, Paul, when he writes the letter to Rome, he, he greets the church that is in Rome. And what he's thinking about when he says that in chapter 1 is he's thinking of the church universal. That every person who is believed in the gospel and who has the Holy Spirit is joined to Christ and therefore part of the church. And there is only one church of Jesus Christ. There's only one body. The universal church of Jesus Christ. But this universal church finds its expression in local churches. Local assemblies of God's people. And this is what verse 5 tells us. Look. Greet also the church in their house. There was a local assembly of believers who actually met in Priscilla and Aquila's house. Now, what we actually see in this text is there's two other churches, I believe, that are mentioned. Look down in verse 14. It says, Greet Asyntacris, Philegion, Hermes, Parabas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. That's another church. In verse 15, Greet Philogus, Julia, Nasirius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. That's another church. So we see that in Rome, even though there is a universal church, there are also local churches, and there are these local churches. Local churches are, are groups of God's people who meet together under God-ordained leadership to share in baptism and communion and to worship Christ together and then to scatter into the world for mission. That's how I define a local church. Now, for me, what you get is when you're a pastor, you get all these books every few years about how to do church. And every few years, some guy will come out with this latest idea that if you just do this one thing, if you just have this one thing, then, you know, the church is going to expand, it's going to be great, it's going to be fantastic, and, 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 and just it's going to be utopia. So if you just do this one thing. And one of the things that is coming out at the moment is the house church movement. That what we need to do is we need to stop meeting in this building and start meeting in houses. And if we just do that one thing, it will be amazing. And, you know, verses that support this are like this verse here where it talks about the church that met in Priscilla and Aquila's house. But I want to put forward to you the reason, only reason why they met in Priscilla and Aquila's house was because they didn't have a building. Is, it's not about where you meet. It's not about where the church meets. The church, oftentimes we focus on the form of things and not on the substance of things. The church 
is a community of God's people that together are under the headship of Christ, under the leadership that he's appointed, who meet for communion and baptism, celebration of the gospel, and who scatter into the world to be his salt and light. And it's not rocket science. You know, oftentimes we just, we just get all caught up in all these methodologies and all these different things rather than focusing on the true reality of the church. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are the church. You are the church, right there. You are the church. Church is not a service, although it does gather. Church is not a building. If the church is a building, we're in trouble. The church is... It's not any of those things. The church is the people of God with the head that is Christ, meeting under Christ-ordained leadership, participating together in the Lord's Supper, baptism, preaching the gospel, scattering for mission. This is what a church really is. And you know, I think we often get it really, really wrong and focus in on the wrong things. You know... I often, I've often said to Andrew, I've said, my, one of the things that's in the back of my mind, okay, I've got to be telling you this, is I want to disciple you guys really, really well over the next 20 years. And this might be a little bit alarmist and it may never happen, but it may come to a point where we cannot own property and we can't be an incorporated body because of our moral stance on things. That may happen one day in Australia. I'm hoping it doesn't, and maybe, as I said, I'm being a bit alarmist. But, you know, if that does happen and we can't meet in this building and the government comes and takes away our building, who really cares? You can come and meet in my home. Some people can go and meet with Pastor Andrew. Some people can go and meet with Brian. Some people can meet with Paul. In the end, it's not about buildings. It's not about budgets. It's about the people of God indwelt by God's Spirit joined together by the gospel of Christ, celebrating that gospel together and then scattering to proclaim that gospel. See, once you start focusing on the the substance, once you start focusing on the forms and not focusing on the substance, then you'll you'll be in trouble. Okay, that was just a little sermon on ecclesiology, but uh, we'll get back to our sermon today. All right, verse 5. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Uh, Since Paul was, um, Asia is Turkey, and since Paul was the first missionary to Asia, Paul probably led this guy to Christ. Do you ever find that you have a real connection with the people that you've led to Christ? So this is, Paul feels this connection for Epinatus. Verse 6, greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Mary is a Jewish name. Paul probably didn't know Mary uh, because he talks about them, her working hard for them. Verse 7, greet Adronicus and Juna, my kinsmen and fellow pre, uh, prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Now the phrase there, they were well known to the apostles, is actually a phrase that is much debated in the commentaries. Uh, it's, it's actually the phrase literally reads, they were outstanding among the apostles. And many people suggest that the reason that it's much debated is because it seems to be suggesting that Juna and Adronicus were actually apostles like Paul. But actually, I think it's just simply that they were missionaries. Apostles can just mean sent ones. 
So this godly couple, Adronicus and Juno, were like a missionary couple, sort of like a Steve and Terry earlier, I'd like to think. Greet Amphitaitis, my beloved in the Lord. Amphitaitis is actually a slave name. And actually, when you go to the catacombs in Rome, you'll find that there is actually a grave there and it's all decorated. So not only was he beloved by Paul, but he seems to be beloved by everyone. They decorated his grave when he died. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, this is a Roman name, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Starchus, uh, that is a Greek name. Uh, greet Apollatus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, probably because Paul is saying greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus, probably Aristobulus isn't a Christian. But he's probably saying, I want you to greet those people in his family who are Christians. And according to J.B. Lightfoot, Aristobulus was actually the brother of Herod Agrippa I, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great. So you've got to see that the Christian faith had penetrated into the upper uh, regions of Roman society, into the aristocrats. Uh, look down in verse, uh, uh, verse 11. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord... Uh, Tryphanony and Tryphosa, they're twin sisters. Their names mean uh, delicate and delight. Isn't that interesting? And greet Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, the reason I just went through that whole list for you is because what did I say my point was? Ministry is about people. People. And Paul is greeting all these different people. But in chapter 1, what does Paul say? He says, I've never been to the church at Rome. He hasn't been there, and yet he knows all these people, and he knows intimate details about these people's lives. And what, it's, what it shows me is that ministry, in its essence, is about having a heart and a love for people. And Paul, it would have been very difficult for Paul to find out about people it's like for us today, we've got social media, we've got email, we've got mobile phones and telecommunications. Paul didn't have any of that. But this demonstrates his love, absolute love for people. And ministry is all about people. And you know what can often happen? I think what can often happen for us is we tend to separate the ministry tasks that we're doing from people. So we can think, all I have to do is just exegete the text and get up and speak for half an hour. Just preach. Rather than realize that I need to love you and be praying for you. You can just think, all my ministry about is just about cleaning a toilet. Rather than thinking, what I'm doing here is I'm cleaning these toilets so that someone can be served for Christ. You see, often we separate ministry from people. And if you want to renew your love for your ministry, you need to renew your heart for people. Where does that come from? Renewing your heart for people? Why does Paul have such a great heart for people? Just think about the people who he's mentioned. He's mentioned people, Greeks, he's mentioned Romans, he's mentioned slave people, he's, met, he's mentioned people who are who are in the upper parts of Roman society. 
How does he love all these different people? Well, he has the heart of the Lord Jesus. You see, if our love for people has grown cold, it's because our love for Christ has grown cold. And maybe today you need to come back and you need to come back to the Lord and ask him to give you a heart once again for people. You teachers who teach at Cedar College or if you teach in general, what will transform your teaching is a love for those children. If you're a youth group leader, what will give you passion is a love for those kids. In your worship team, you can just do the worship and just do the performance. But you need to see that what you're doing is you're actually serving the congregation so that they will love and worship Christ. See what I'm saying? Is it comes back to coming back to Christ, putting him in the right place and having him transform your heart and give you a love for other people. Now, this is what I get out of this text. This is what Paul had, was a heart for people. And that's what I want to have. And I'm sorry, I'm learning how to, how to have a greater heart, pastoral heart for people, for you. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that you might help us to be a church who has a heart for other people. Lord, we just pray that you would give us your heart for people. Forgive us for focusing on the wrong things and help us to focus on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and let's worship.